Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Daniel Janine. Hi, Daniel. STFU. You know what that stands for? No. Start the flipping upsell. All right. All right. Let's get into it. Uh, today, we are talking to two entrepreneurs mm-hmm. about the restaurants they own. They both own multiple concepts and how they raise money for them. Each person in this, in this episode went about raising money kind of a non-traditional way. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Maya Lovelace, who has a couple projects in Portland. And for her most recent project, she is using Kickstarter. Yep. And then we are going to talk to Esther Choi. Mm-hmm. She is the new host of an eater show Test called Kitchen Gadget Show. Test Kitchen Gadget Show. Yep. And she has three restaurants. Three restaurants in New York. Yeah. First one she opened was in Chelsea Market, which is this kind of luxe shopping and food tourist space. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear her say it, but she had very fortunate circumstances that allowed her to open She basically won a contest. She won a contest. That helped her with the startup fees. Um, Then she went a more traditional route, which was much harder. Friends and family. Bringing on friends and family and investors. Yep. uh, And then brought on partners for her third concept. So we're going to hear about the different intricacies of each. Um, I think these types of stories are really important to tell because oftentimes we don't get to hear about the hardships that go into actually raising money. Mm-hmm. And people read Eater or Food Media and they get really excited about the idea of opening a restaurant but don't know how hard it is and how hard it continues to be throughout the life of the restaurant. It's not just the beginning. Yeah, it's not getting any easier. And even with all these online platforms and, and kind of new ways to reach people across the country to get money from them, uh, all those things kind of have their own have their own drawbacks. We write stories all the time about giant divorces and breakups between right. the money people and the creative side. And I think you have to go in with your eyes wide open, knowing mm-hmm. what the possibilities are. And listen, especially in Esther's, when she's talking about uh, raising money from from her friends and family, she, you can see where those cracks could mm-hmm. start. To, especially when you need more money than you thought you did, which happens is probably, to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one thing I want to say before we get into it is if you have a story about rest- mm-hmm. restaurant investment and you want to talk to us about something, you want to come on the show or just like send us a voice memo, please do so. Yeah. We're like, always happy to add restaurant investment segments to any episode. <laughs> well, you know, I just I just want to hear from everybody because our listeners are in the industry and they've all been through this. Right. So if you want to send us a voice memo to upsellateater.com, we would love to hear from you and play it on the air. Mm-hmm. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes. Also, feel free to chat with us on Twitter or email us at upsellateater.com. Mm-hmm. Our first guest is Maya Lovelace, an eater young gun. <laughs> yep, uh, who owns uh, a pop-up place called May and is about to open a restaurant called Yonder in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So today um, on the show, we are talking about restaurant investment, and I was reading recently about how you are going through Kickstarter for your new restaurant, Yonder. And I was wondering if yeah. you could first back up and tell us how you raised money or how you opened your first restaurant, May, and then we can go into why you're um, doing this for Yonder. May is actually kind of a funny story. Um, we have been operating as a pop-up for about three years at this point, um, kind of existing somewhere between being a pop-up and a full-fledged restaurant. We are in someone else's space okay. and have always been. Um, so essentially to start the pop-up, we didn't really raise a ton of money. Uh, Zach and I both had 
a little bit of money, which was enough to buy, you know, some equipment and to kind of place our first food orders <laughs> so we could start cooking for people. Mm-hmm. But that was all it really took for us. Um, it was not nearly as as uh, overwhelming um, as a restaurant opening. Right. So we were you able did, you didn't need money to build, build out a space or anything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we basically just built that kind of organically. Like as we grew, we would just buy more equipment and kind of add other things on. Um, but now as we're kind of staring down the barrel of opening a real <laughs> full-fledged restaurant, uh, actually kind of two restaurants in one, it's a completely different story. Can you tell us about Yonder and the, and what, what kind of restaurant it's going to be? Yeah. Uh, so we are opening Yonder uh, in May, like a new version of May under one roof. Um, Yonder, which is going to be kind of the front restaurant, uh, is going to be sort of a classic Southern meat and three. Um, you know, you go and get your main dish and a few sides. Um, but with kind of a Pacific Northwest twist, um, using mostly local ingredients and kind of, you know, the, the best things that we can. Um, there's going to be like fried chicken, fried catfish, um, specials rotating all the time, like smothered pork chops, braised oxtail, what have you. Um, cornbread biscuits, collard grains, Hop and John, all that kind of really good stuff. And we're operating that in a counter service setting. So it's going to be super casual, easy for people to drop in. Um, The biggest complaint that we've gotten with May over the last few years is that it's all (laughs) reservation based Mm. and uh, our reservations normally sell out for a month in about six minutes. So people have a tendency to not really enjoy that once you get to a certain point. <laughs> I can see that. Um, so Yonder is going to be kind of our way to actually connect a little bit more with our community and actually get a chance to serve more people. And then May is going to exist similarly to the way it does now um, in a back private room um, as a prefix menu. Sorry, so in the first concept, you had absolutely no investors, right? No one to kind of answer to? No real startup costs. No, nothing. No, no real startup costs at all. It was seriously like... Let's buy five cast iron skillets and and do a thing. And now, how are you gathering or how are you getting money for the new concept? We are trying as hard as we can to go without taking um, any partners. So I'm sure you guys know, um, but I'll just reiterate for most restaurants, um, you bring on partners who you give a certain percentage of the business. Um, and that way they're able to just kind of constantly feed money in for whatever you need. Um, we're trying not to do that because in my experience, as I'm sure you guys have seen as well, uh, there are frequently issues between chefs and partners. What kind of issues? I have seen per- personally um, in the media and, you know, just in, in normal life, I see um, where maybe a restaurant isn't pulling the kind of numbers that an investor would like. And so chefs have to really drastically change um, their vision, uh, sometimes even change, you know, the kind of food that they're executing, change the way that the business works just to kind of hit a better uh, profit margin. And the profit margins are so small in this business anyway that, you know, that's totally understandable. If somebody is going to plunk in hundreds of thousand dollars, you can understand why they would want to make a, a great return on that. But I don't know. This this has been such a passion project for me. I know all restaurants are, but you know, this one is named for my grandmother. You know, it's inspired by the dinners that she used to cook for us, her recipe box, her life. So the idea of handing that over to someone in exchange for money 
is really difficult for me. Well, it's funny. So that's something kind of, I was just gonna say, that's what we talk about all the time where people name their restaurants or have this special connection to something that's very personal. And then they end up having some sort of disagreement or falling out or they get kicked out of the business. And yeah. then it's like, I just, that was my daughter's name or my grandmother's name or, or whatever. Uh, and so I think, or even their own name. Yeah. Or their we, own names. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of wild. So Basically, the idea of avoiding that, if possible, is really attractive to me. Um, it is harder, <laughs> I will say, so far, um, to kind of try to cobble funds together. Because, I mean, we're we're doing a full build-out. Um, I know that it probably would have been smarter to go into a failed restaurant or something like that and just mm-hmm. kind of snap up everything they had. But, again, having been in someone else's space for so long... Um, there's this really big pull to actually create something of our own. Uh, so we're going about it in a couple of different ways. Um, there's the Kickstarter, of course, which I think we're officially down to six days now. Mm-hmm. What, what's your goal? Our goal is $75,000. Okay. Yeah, which I, I honestly think is probably less than 25% of what it's going to take to open. Mm-hmm. Um but Kickstarter is really, uh, really intense. <laughs> it's probably been the most intense three weeks of, of my life wow. at this point. Um, Why? Yeah, it's, it's just, it's so wild. I don't know. I'm not really um, accustomed to asking people for a lot of things. Like I've always been very much a, a pull myself up by my bootstraps kind of person. So going out and saying like, hey, world it would be really cool if you could give me some money. Um, feels really difficult. It <laughs> feels really awkward for me. Right. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's just been a really interesting few weeks of like watching that number creep up and creep up, you know, having a decent amount of anxiety. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really weird kind of feeling like you're putting, you're putting your future out into the hands of the public. Have you done it though? Have you been asking, have you been directly asking people to donate? Yes, I have. I mean, basically, the the thing behind Kickstarter is that you just have to have like crazy social media communication. Like you have to just kind of constantly be putting it out there over and over again and saying like, hey, please help, basically, Um, which is taxing and weird. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any other downsides to Kickstarter beyond the like emotional and and anxiety inducing? Um, I, I don't really think that there are a ton. I mean, Kickstarter takes a small percentage mm-hmm. of the final number that you raise, but it's not much. Um, I honestly worry a little bit that maybe people kind of look at you a certain way. If you do mm-hmm. a Kickstarter, mm-hmm. uh, not to get too gossipy <laughs> or juicy on anything, but the day that we launched our Kickstarter, I actually got, a text message from a really successful restaurateur here in Portland um, out of the blue that just said uh, Kickstarter is for kids with cancer and people who need surgery. Wow. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, which obviously is not true. Kickstarter is a platform made for people to raise money to start a business or launch a product or whatever. Like it's always been about business. Right. Um, yeah. But there's this kind of weird feeling of backlash almost where people are like, 
how dare you ask. Right. Oh, my God. Well, beyond beyond being a jerk, that that guy has clearly just never used Kickstarter. Right. Obviously. That's a quarter of the fundraising. What what are your other plans? Our other plans um, are basically sourcing what are called sweetheart loans Mm -hmm. uh, from friends and family, uh, from people who have been coming to May for the last few years. Essentially, just kind of building a little contract and saying, you know, you guys can loan us however much money you want from $5,000 up uh, at a certain percentage and we'll pay it back to you. So kind of like getting a bank loan, but handling it all ourselves and kind of, you know, using those uh, personal relationships to kind of pull in some money. And then also we are just like getting a big loan from the SBA, uh, which I think is something that a lot of small businesses obviously do. Um, They generally have a little bit more support for entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. but it's not just kind of a blind bank loan. They're a little bit more involved in it. So, Um, Cool. Any other, any any advice you would give to someone who's just starting out after all you've been through with this? I mean, honestly, I think if, if someone is just starting out trying to open a restaurant, I think you just have to really make sure that you build great relationships with people who are interested in what you do and who love what you do. Um, Especially if you're hoping to go about it without giving away a significant portion of your business. Um, yeah, it's, it, for us, it's been all about our investment in the community and our connections that we've been able to build with regulars and friends over the last few years. And hopefully that will be enough to kind of pull us through and let us open on time. Amazing. Yeah, that's everything. Do you want to tell us, uh, are you giving away anything funny on the Kickstarter thing? <laughs> uh, not really anything funny per se. I think my favorite... Um, reward that we've created is uh, we're going to have a big uh, hall that kind of leads to the uh, inside of the building down past the kitchen and yonder. And we're calling it the, the Mima wall. <laughs> and it's basically uh, a place where people can donate us a certain amount of money. And we're going to hang up a framed portrait of their grandmother or their mother or some other uh, important female figure in their life. Yeah. Sort of like a little tribute wall. It's a way to kind of do that. Your name on a brick thing, mm-hmm. but a little bit more interesting. How uh, much, how much, what's that level? Thousand. I, I kind of want in. <laughs> it's a thousand dollars. Oh, you get, you got, oh, you looked it up. Yeah. Same, well, that's yeah. a good price. Um, okay. And when, when's the last day? When do people have until? I think it's the, the 11th or the 12th. It's the 11th. <laughs> 11th. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm so bad with stuff like this. Okay, cool. So yeah, that'll be the last day. So we have a, a little push here and we'll see, see if we can make it happen. Awesome. Well, good luck. Instead of an ad this week, Gail Simmons of Top Chef and famous food personality, mm-hmm. Gail Simmons, is calling in to tell us about Wellness in Schools, which is a charity that we love. Hi, Gail. Hi. Can you tell the audience members that don't know what Wellness in the Schools does? Yes, absolutely. Wellness in the Schools teaches public school kids in New York and around the country how to eat well and focuses not just on food, but on fitness and nutrition. Um, They work with cooks and coaches together with teachers and students as part of school curriculums, as well as working with healthy lunch programs, hands-on cooking lessons, lunch menu development. So it's really a long-term game plan going into public schools all around New York and elsewhere to get kids eating better, moving more, and feeling better so that they can learn. Cool. That's awesome. And they have a gala coming up? 
They do. Our our gala is on April 17th here in New York City, and um, it's at the IAC building. You can get tickets for it at wellnessintheschools.org, and it will be so much fun. Last year was a blast. We have tons and tons of different restaurants that we're partnering with, all that will be there cooking, lots of amazing hosts like me and... <laughs> Tons of other chefs who will be there cooking and talking. And other less important people. (laughs) And then just lots of people who want to eat and want to support local schools and good food. Cool. Any fun stories from last year? Well, I do have a memory from last year that we were all talking to different tables of people who had come to, you know, experience the night. And they wanted a bunch of us to be talking, you know, for 15 minutes to each table so that we got a chance to circulate. But of course, we all got so involved that it never even worked because the thing you don't know about food people is that when they're talking about food, they don't stop talking. (laughs) The people are listening to a food podcast. Yeah, yeah, they know. (laughs) So you're stuck at one table the whole night? Well, not at one table, but we all just couldn't stop talking. So (laughs) we had this very orchestrated plan of, you know, every five minutes, moving to a different table, and that just didn't work. <laughs> so a couple tables got Gail Simmons yeah. last year. Yeah, there so you go. a couple tables got Gail Simmons. And you could be one of those tables this yeah. year. But they got amazing other people. Yeah. people got amazing people. You never know. I'll definitely be there, and I will be eating. Great. So Wellness in the Schools fans, Gail Simmons fans, anybody who cares about helping school yeah. children learn about nutritious eating and fitness, um, please donate at Wellness in the Schools uh, or go to the gala. Up next, we have Esther Choi, who has three restaurants in New York City. The first, which you will hear about, is called Mock Bar. Well, the first and second are called Mock Bar. Mock Bar is located in Chelsea Market, which is kind of this grand, uh, fancy food and shopping hall. And Esther won a competition to get the spot there. The second is called Mock Bar as well. It was it's in in Brooklyn, and she went a more traditional route, raising money from friends and family. And the third is called Ms. You in the Lower East Side, and she just had some big partners behind her for that one. So these are kind of three unique ways of generating money for a restaurant, and you can hear the, I guess the the benefits and the and the shortcomings of each one. Thanks for calling in. So we're talking today about basically just the the dollars. Yeah. Ha- about how restaurants uh, generate or put money together for. Oh man, my favorite topic in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you raise money for your first project? Uh, <laughs> I didn't raise money. I just uh, I got very 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 lucky, but I also worked really really hard to get that location, and um, I was fortunate enough. To you know, be in a space uh, where it's like a market setting. So it's owned by a huge corporation, and they gave me some um, tenant allowance to open my space. So I opened with absolutely nothing, zero dollars. Uh, I got money from my landlord who um, gave me some uh, PI. Sorry, what is that? So it's like a tenant allowance. So oh, they okay. gave me a little bit of money to um, build out my space, like very minimal. And um, I did also get a very small loan from my parents, um, like $20,000 to buy the food and to hire like one person. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and I was just very fortunate that as soon as I opened, I was was busy. And so how did you convince them to give you the money over somebody else? Or how did you convince them to choose your your concept? Uh, well, actually, it was like a crazy competition that went on for over three months. Um, 
it was, you know, countless tastings and uh, business plan and presentations. And basically it, it was like, you know, a couple few thousand applicants narrowed down into, you know, the last two standing. Um, and they picked me over the other guy, which, you know, I'm not really allowed to say who it was, but it was someone pretty big in the industry. Ooh. So, yeah, I got... Um, I got very lucky, but I, I also think the food kind of spoke for itself. And it was a time where Korean food was really on the rise and, you know, it was very unique and there was nothing like that in the area. So uh, my concept so, sort of like blew everyone out of the water. So um, I, I really believe it's the power of food. Were there any drawbacks to getting the money from Chelsea Market? No, not at all. I mean, I, I'm still, in, to this day, very appreciative of everything that happened and I still find myself like very in a very very lucky position when it comes to Chelsea and you know people are supposed to like hate their landlords but I actually love my landlords there and um, even though they're like a big corporation they, I think that they still care a lot and I'm very lucky and then what about the next place the next place um, up Brooklyn, that's, a, that's a different story <laughs> I raised um, I raised a lot of money for that this project, um, I basically built the restaurant from scratch. There was nothing here, um, so I had to build everything, design everything myself, and it was very expensive. Um, so I did raise money from uh, three investors, um, two of them being really um, sort of like close friends. So it's like angel investment that I got, and um, one of the investors, the third investor being my parents. So my parents, um, who have equity, and then uh, my best, one of my best friends that went to call that I met in culinary school, um, and then um, my third investor was my is now my partner at MSU. So he was also in the restaurant industry. I met him, um, and he loved the concept and and decided to invest. Did you have to set pretty clear guidelines about how much? input they would get to have as investors in the space and also a timeline for when they would potentially get paid back? Yes, it was very strict. I did everything by the books. Um, I had uh, my <clears throat> my controller, you know, cost out every little dime. And, you know, obviously we did projections. We um, went through all the numbers in the books. They went through all my numbers at Chelsea. And, you know, we... we um, set really strong boundaries on everything just because we didn't want, obviously, you know, we hear horror stories about investments and things not going well. And these are my close friends, you know, like people that really kind of, you know, love me and I love them and I didn't want to, you know, have anything like this affect our relationship. So it's still, I, I would say it's still like kind of tricky because, you know, not everything goes by what you imagine it to go. So, so there are things that happen that make things a little awkward or weird, but I think in the end, you know, they trust me, I trust them. So, you know, in the end, we signed paperwork, we went, we did everything by the books. So there is no confusion, basically. Is there anything you would do differently if you were doing it again? Um, yeah, probably. I would have raised a little bit more money hmm. instead of... Um, I, I just I raised a very small amount, um, and I ended up going double my budget, um, wow. and we kind of like had to scramble 
uh, trying to get this place open because we were also delayed by eight months in this project. And that was a nightmare because every month that you're delayed, you're losing money. Um, and I had to come out, come up with another, you know, 500, a uh, half a million dollars to build the rest of the restaurant. Oh my God. Was, was half a million, how much you raised at the, at the start? Yes. Yeah. Is that, is that what was awkward? Uh, well, I didn't go back to them for the money because, and that, and that's the thing. It's like, yes, we did things by the book, but in the end, if I did things by the book, I would have went back and asked for more money, more money because that's what you do. You know, it's business. But I just couldn't do that. I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to be fair to them because it was my miscalculation. And um, that was my, on my end, my fault. So I came up with the rest of the money. I, I, I was very fortunate because Mokbar was doing very well. And um, we saved a lot of money just in case. So I had like some funds saved up. But, you know, I'm not going to lie. We, we struggled quite a bit and we're still struggling um because of you know how much how much of how much we were set back because of that setback it takes years to kind of recoup from that so that's that's i'm still going through that pain right now right versus with your first place where you start really small and you're already funded so there's you exactly. have a lot I less to lose about like yeah I'm, i still think about like oh why did i open a second place because if i just like just had one, we, we would have been, you know, we're, I would have been like really, you know, comfortable um, and would have made a good amount of money. Instead, with all that money I made, I put it back into the business. And, you know, I, I guess that's what you do when you want to grow. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's tough. It's a tough decision, but it's already something that happened. So you can't really take it back either. So you just, you, you just ride with it. So then with that in mind, why, why'd you do another one? Okay, so that, that was really kind of a very bad decision. I, I mean, I, will, I don't want to say it like that. I, no regrets, right? Right. But it, it, the timing didn't really work out well. Um, what happened was Makbar Brooklyn was delayed by eight months, and that kind of like set me back with Miss You. Miss You was supposed to open maybe like a year apart from Makbar Brooklyn. But what ended up happening was because Mapar Brooklyn was so delayed, it kind of coincided with um, Miss U opening as well. And Miss U was also delayed by three months. So even though it was, but even though the timing was a little off, it was still very close to each other. And that is what made it such a, a kind of like hellish experience. Um, because, you know, trying to open two restaurants in one year, it, it was just insane. Um, and, but Miss You, it's, it's totally separate. I have partners there, um, and we funded the restaurant ourselves between the four partners. And um, it wasn't a project where you, we had to have a ton of money. It was more, um, it was already a built-up place. So it was really... Um, facade and just like some equipment and just some startup costs that we were paying for. So it wasn't something that you, that I had to like build out from scratch, uh, which is what Brooklyn was like. Um, so a little bit different. And also I think when you have partners, you have a little bit of leeway and comfort and depending on someone else mm-hmm. to, to build out something. So that's where, for me, I, I realized like partnerships allow oh, wow, it. It makes it so much easier in some sense. 
easy in some ways, you know, harder in other ways. But um, in terms of financially, it's not as burdensome. So do you think that opening in these fancy food halls has given chefs and restaurateurs kind of a distorted view of what a first restaurant is actually like? For sure. hundred uh, percent. Because I went through that exact thing. Like I, you know, I was very fortunate with the first one. I thought, I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I just didn't realize the whole kind of like the whole picture of it. The the amount of work and effort and money, money especially, I think. I was kind of like in shock after, you know, the first year. Now I kind of just like live with it every day, but, you know, still I'm feeling a lot of the pain. And, you know, when you, when you have like that kind of support from the market, you just don't know how it is. So markets are great in some sense, but yeah, if you want to become a real restaurateur, it, yes, it does give you a distorted view. What what advice do you give to people who come and tell you that they're opening a new place in Brooklyn or in Manhattan or somewhere out of a market? Um, I, I do want to say, well, first of all, you have to live and breathe it every minute of your life to so be prepared for that. Um, it's like even more than becoming just a parent because you're not just becoming a parent to like your restaurant, which is your child. It's also everything that comes with it, financial burden, employees, like everything everything you have to just it's hard to explain it uh, you have to kind of live it to really know but you have to be mentally ready that that's like the biggest thing and financially too because I was very fortunate that I had some sort of like you know backup plan or like I wouldn't say it was a backup plan because I really struggled and I still struggle right now with it um, but I still had somewhere to go to for, you know, for a little extra cushion. And I, I know that not everyone has that. So that, that's something that running a restaurant costs a shit ton of money. Like it's just really, really expensive. I, I can't even explain to you like how many costs just like pop out of nowhere. Um, especially in a city like New York, New York loves to just like eat you up <laughs> And a lot of it has to do with financials. It's it's very expensive. And even for, you know, very successful restaurants, it doesn't matter how well you think you're doing, it's really the cost. Because, you know, with more people with more money with more costs, I mean with more money comes more costs as well. It, it's it's really a vicious cycle. Yeah, I think it's a good point that it's not just the beginning. It's like five years in, you could run into new new financial issues. Even if people think you're doing really well. I think about like, you know, even the crazy labor laws that are just like now surfacing, right? Anyone can sue anyone. And that's like a big thing that's happening. Like, I feel like, oh, well, actually, it's been happening for a while. I just think that it's more surfaced now because there's uh, more maybe publicity on it. it. It's even small things like that. It's not small because once that happens, it put you out of business right then and there. Mm-hmm. Like no question about it. Like is it even worth it to, you know, to go through that lawsuit and go through all of that stuff and, you know, barely make ends meet? Is it even worth it? Because then you're like looking your ass off, but like for nothing. Right. Right. So, so like, there's like so many things that you think about. I think that's why a lot of people end up giving up because if you're trying to do, if you're trying to open a restaurant to make money, I would suggest think of, another career (laughs) because you know it it really shouldn't be about financials it should really be about uh, passion and that's what keeps you going every day 
I think, or keeps me going every day. Great. Well, um, I think that's everything. Thank yeah, you so much good, for, good for calling in. Amanda. Dan. <laughs> what have you learned today? I learned that there are a lot of different options for starting a restaurant mm-hmm. and that each one is going to be incredibly difficult, mm-hmm. but that it can be done. So I think it should give people hope if they do want to go the route of entrepreneurship over just getting a chef job and working for somebody else. Yeah, there is hope. It seems like in these uh, the successful parts of these stories, uh, each of these chefs kind of tried to tackle one thing at once. So Esther and Maya had a space that they didn't really have any financial commitment in at first that was their space um, where they could just test out their food Yeah, before – Launching into the whole build out before yeah, kind yeah. of building the whole place. I, I think that is a good idea if it can work out for you. Is trying out something tough, with small though. stakes. Yeah, like doing pop-ups. doing the pop up route, like having a way to test your concept before you end up raising a million dollars. Again, if you have any restaurant investment stories that you would like us to hear and talk about, please send them in as a voice memo to upsell at eater Please subscribe to Amanda Clute's newsletter. Ah, thanks, Dan. Uh, well, nice plug. You wake up Saturday morning. You're like, what it's happened like, uh, in the food world this week? Cliff's Notes. Did you ever read those? Yeah, Clute's like, Notes. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There we yeah. go. It's like cheating. Yeah. Sometimes you editorialize the stories a tiny yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I give a little slant. Yeah. There's often some snark mm-hmm. uh, written throughout it, which is great. And and there's a nice little um, essay at the top about something. Something. It must. You, you got to write one every week. It must. It must. It's. It's. It's hard. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have anything. I just got to pull. What do you do when you have absolutely nothing? Uh, nah. I, I, I. There's like. There's some throwaway ones sometimes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you can also kind of expand your thoughts on one of the stories. Yeah. But I owe it to our newsletter editor by like two o'clock every Friday. And yeah. So that's that's my deadline. It's good. It's good. Jenny Zhang. Best Jenny in Zang, the game. Best in the game. Don't poach her. Awesome. Uh, uh, anyway, that's all we have for you. That's this all week. we have. Tune in next week for an interview with a very big name, food celebrity. Big, big name. Um, signing off.